there was a guy who walked in to the lumber yard one day and he said, I need a bunch of four by twos. And the guy behind the counter said, four by twos? You mean two by fours? The guy said, nope, nope, I'm pretty sure what I need is a bunch of four by twos. And the guy behind the counter said, I don't have any four by twos. I got a whole bunch of two by fours. Will those work? And the first guy walked out to the truck, talked to his buddy for a couple of minutes, came back and said, yeah, I think we can make the four by twos work. We'll just stand them sideways. And so the guy behind the counter said, how long do you need them? And the guy, oh, come on. Who was that? Judy, was that you? Guy went out, talked to his buddy in the truck, and he came back and he said, well, we're going to need them a long time. We're building a house. So communication, right? That's, that's the point of the story. Communication is key. Communication is critical. Finding a joke that not everybody's already heard is very important when you're trying to set the stage for what's coming. Maybe this one. Judy, don't, okay? Three really old men sitting on a park bench, and one says, it sure is windy out here. And the other one says, no, it's Thursday. And the third one says, me too. Let's go get a Coke. That's... Communication, right? The problem with communication is assuming that it's happened because typically it doesn't. So when our God wanted to reveal himself to the world, when our God wanted to be very clear about who he is and what he's all about and what he's doing and how he's doing it and why he's doing it. When our God wanted to communicate that to us, he came here in person so we could see it. The almighty creator of heaven and earth put on our skin and bones. He took on our flesh and blood and our burdens and our pain and he shared with us and he showed us so we could see it in person. That's what Hebrews 1 is all about. We've already read it this morning. In the past, back in, you know, a long time ago, God spoke to our ancestors. He spoke to our forefathers through the prophets a whole bunch of times in a whole bunch of different ways. But now, now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The Son, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 1 says, God was pleased, he was happy to have all of his fullness, every part of him, everything that God is, dwelled in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said himself. Remember Jesus' own words, if you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father, that's right. That's what this is about. And so that's what we want to do today and over the next six Sundays together. We want to see Jesus. We want to see him. In John chapter 12, there's a group of Greeks in that big crowd in Jerusalem. And that's what they say. We would like to see Jesus. And that's what we want to do. We want to see just Jesus, not, not our church doctrines and positions and practices, not our church leadership structures and discipleship models. We just want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus preach and teach. We want to see Jesus feed and heal. We want to watch Jesus as he prays and dies. We want to see Jesus as he reveals to us God and the kingdom of God. 
Now, one of the ways Jesus did this was by telling stories, parables. We call them parables. And when Jesus tells parables, they're not just common earthy stories with a nice tight moralism at the end. You know, once upon a time there was a fisherman, he went out to sea, this thing happened, and so don't tell lies to your mother and father. You know, that's, that's not what a parable is. Jesus' stories are his way of pulling the curtain back on the very nature of God and revealing to us the eternal realities of the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 13, the writer makes very clear that Jesus told stories all the time. Like, that's the only way he taught. Matthew 13, verse 3 says, He told them many things in parables. Verse 24, Jesus told them another parable. Verse 31, he told them another parable. Verse 33, he told them still another parable. Verse 34, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. Why? Why does Jesus tell so many stories? Well, Matthew says, and he's quoting from Isaiah here, verse 35, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Jesus' stories reveal eternal realities, eternal truths about God and the kingdom of God. I can't remember what song it was, Corey, but we've already said it, right? Your hidden glory in creation now revealed in Christ. Remember singing that? That's what Matthew 13 is telling us, that that these are big picture truths. This is heaven and earth. This is God and man. These are universal truths that Jesus is communicating with his parables. And even Jesus' parables can't quite live up to the task. Even Jesus' stories can't quite communicate the eternal glory of what Jesus is trying to communicate. The the truths and the realities are too big. It's like they're too wonderful. And Jesus can't even explain them with the story. And I think sometimes that frustrated Jesus. In Mark chapter 4, it's kind of a similar thing where in verse 2, Jesus taught them many things by many parables. And in verse 10... The apostles asked Jesus about one of the parables, and in verse 13, he says, Don't you understand the parable? If you don't understand this parable, how will you understand any parable? I think Jesus is frustrated by this. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. Verse 33 says, With many parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. Jesus is doing his best, but he's working with us. And so he tells a lot of stories so we can see God and see the kingdom of God. So, come and see Jesus tell stories. Let's look at some of them. And there's a bunch of them, but we'll pick out a few of the weird ones to get started with. Okay, Luke uh, chapter 16. Jesus tells a story. There was a rich man. And you know how much we all hate rich people, right? And this rich man finds out that his manager was ripping him off. He's stealing from him. He's skimming off the top. And so the rich man calls this little weasel in for an audit. He says, hey, I hear you're cheating me. Show me the books. 
He's busted. And the little rat says, um, sure, boss, there's nothing more I would like to do than show you the books. Why don't you uh, give me a couple of days to get the books together and then I'll show you the books. And this guy's thinking, I'm about to get fired. And he says it right here, I'm too proud to beg. I'm too big of a weenie to do manual labor, right? So he's like, what am I going to do? And then it hits him, I've got it. I'll call in all of my boss's debtors, all the people who owe him money, and I'll just write off a bunch of their numbers. And they'll be so happy, they'll take care of me when I get canned. They'll make sure I don't go to jail. And so the caper begins. And the debtors are each called in one at a time. You owe my boss $10,000? Let's mark that down to $2,500. He'll never know. And so these huge sums of money are just written off. And then comes the day of judgment. Now this little punk is going to get what he deserves. And this dishonest manager just walks in. He hands the cooked books over to his boss. And the boss says, why you genius. You stinking genius. What wonderful initiative. What innovative bookkeeping. I wish all my employees were this resourceful and creative in looking out for themselves. Wait, what? What kind of a savior tells a story like this? On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus tells a story. He says, If the homeowner had known when the thief was going to break in, the homeowner would have been prepared. So who's the thief in that story? Is it God? Is that a good way to describe God? As the thief who breaks into your house in the middle of the night and robs you blind? It's weird, at least, right? That Jesus compares God to a thief? I'm not sure that's the best way to think about God. It's not helpful. Okay, Luke chapter 18. Here's another one. Jesus tells a story about prayer. A desperate widow pleads her case before the judge who's a real jerk. And she's getting nowhere. And so she shows up at the judge's house in the middle of the night. She's banging on his front door. She is screaming at the top of her lungs, help me please. Please give me some justice. And the judge says, look, I don't give a rip about this old lady. In fact, I don't care about God, much less people, but I've got to get some sleep. I'm going to have to give this old bag what she wants just to get her out of my hair. And Jesus says, pray like that. Wait, like what? (laughs) Pray like what? You know, at the end of a lot of Jesus' stories, the people who heard them weren't like, amen. They were like, huh? I don't understand. Even the apostles, they didn't always understand the stories. And that's because a lot of Jesus' stories are open-ended, right? And sometimes they don't have any obvious points. So, So what do stories like this, stories that leave us scratching our heads, what do these weird stories tell us about God and the kingdom of God? Come and see Jesus tell stories. Okay, what are we supposed to see? Well, one of the things I think that we're supposed to see is that life is messy. 
And we all know life is messy. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Life is messy. I don't have to tell you that life is messy. You know life is messy. But I think one of the reasons Jesus tells us these stories is to let us know that God also knows life is messy. Life doesn't always make sense. Sometimes life feels random. And there's no rhyme or reason to the things that happen to you or around you. Sometimes at the end of the day, you don't know if you're winning or losing. You don't, you're not sure who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Maybe everybody's bad, including you. Life is hard to explain. And maybe these stories remind us that we really don't know God the way we think we do. Because we can get caught sometimes thinking we know everything. Sometimes I think Jesus tells these parables to just move us, story by story, one scene at a time, from the safe and secure world of church and church people and church doctrines and church programs where we think we've got it all figured out, into a place where things are strange and, and they don't always turn out like we expect them to. I think these stories are also reminders that God doesn't always do what we think. God ought to do and that sometimes God will show up when we least expect it in Luke chapter 13 there's another story there's a frustrated farmer stuck with a lousy fig tree for three years he's had this fig tree and no figs now, I'm not sure why he's so upset fig newtons have not been invented yet and there's Nothing else good you can do with a fig as far as I'm concerned. But this guy's finally had enough, right? Cut it down. This tree's done. It's nothing but a drag on my dirt. And the servant says, no, forgive the tree. Now, the Greek word in the original text here is ophiami, which means leave it alone. Don't worry about it. In other contexts, this exact same word means forgive. And so the servant is saying Forgive the tree. Give the tree another chance. Let me work with it a little more. Let me spread some mulch. Let me use some miracle grow. Let's just see what happens. And then we don't know what happens. What happened to the fig tree? I would love to know what happened with the fig tree. But, but this is the way Jesus' stories are. They don't really explain anything. And it's like all of them start in the middle. Have you noticed that? They don't really start at the beginning once upon a time. It's like, oh, we're already in the middle of the story. And then by the time you're interested, hey, yeah, I want to know what's going on. Then it's over and you have no idea how the story went or, or how it ended. Well, maybe the Lord's parables aren't meant to explain. Maybe the stories are supposed to make us think a little harder. Maybe they're intended to make us dig a little deeper because a lot of the time, I think that we think we've got God figured out. I think it's real easy for us to just pigeonhole Jesus and walk away from him and say, yeah, yeah, I get that. I know about Jesus. I get Jesus. I was, I was born and raised in a church. I know all the stories. Don't talk to me about Jesus. I get Jesus. That's easy for us. But when Jesus gets us, when he gets us, then the kingdom of God adventure is too beautiful and too marvelous for us to even imagine. 
And I think that's the other thing we're supposed to see as Jesus tells stories. One, life is messy. But two, and more importantly, God is busy. God is at work in all of these messes. And he is at work in your life and all of your messes. All the stuff that's happening to you and around you that don't make any sense. Listen, God is doing something. Jesus tells his stories the way he does so that you become a character in the narrative. Suppose one of you, how many times does Jesus start a story that way? Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep. Suppose one of you has a couple of kids, right? He wants you in the story. He wants to put you and your story into God's story. He wants you to see yourself in his story. If you go back to this really weird story in Luke chapter 16 about the, the dishonest manager. I mean, who are you rooting for in this story? It's a weird story, right? Who are you identifying with? Because at first, you want to sympathize with the poor little accountant. You know, and, and I know embezzling from your company is not a virtue, and that's not something we want to praise, but we're sure not siding with the rich guy, right? In the Bible, the rich guy is always the bad guy. Like 99% of the time, the rich guy is the bad guy, and so we're not on his side. We're certainly on the accountant's side because he's probably only stealing what this evil rich guy should have been paying him in the first place. I mean, the guy's got a wife and kids, right? They're expecting to eat. They need a place to live. This little manager is just doing the best he can in his situation. And so we're really on his side at first. And then the real swindling begins. And we see what a lazy loser this slob is. And we find ourselves in the front office. Now we're rooting for the boss. This guy's a crook. Take him away. But then the judgment comes and the boss praises this little sleaze as some kind of a business genius. So seriously, who are you identifying with in this story? Because no matter who you pick, now I'm questioning your morals. What kind of a person are you? We're all looking sideways at each other now in the pews, right? What's wrong with you? And we're running back and forth in this weird story trying to find one decent character and we realize they're all crooks. Nobody's hands are clean. Including mine. And that is exactly where God is at work. That's where God is busy transforming your life. Listen, life is messy. And it's hard to explain, but God is in the middle of the mess, and he is speaking to you, and he is shaping you, and transforming you, and he is saving you, and he is turning on the light bulb so you can see, so you can see God, so you can see the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus tells stories. Life is messy, and he is at work. And it dawns on you while you're lying in the ditch on the side of the road, moments from death. And you've been beaten up and you're broken. And the things that are most dear to you have been taken away. And you're just lying there. And you feel dead. And you realize your only hope for salvation. Your only real source for any help is coming. Here he comes. It's the guy from church. 
And the guy from church ignores you. He won't even look at you. He intentionally walks away from you. And it's over. But then, now you realize your genuine hope for salvation. Your real hope for rescue. Your only hope comes from a lousy foreigner that you've been conditioned by your culture to hate. The light bulb's on. And now you see. Well, what do you see? Do you see yourself in that story? I mean, today, right now, who are you in that story? Are you the guy in the ditch? Everything's been taken away from you that you hold dear. You're broken. You're wounded. You need help. Or are you the merciful foreigner providing that help? Who are you? Maybe you're the church guy. You might be. But I think that's what Jesus intends in the way he tells his stories. He wants you in it. What about the mustard seed story? Here's a fun story. Luke 13, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's planted, it grows, it turns into a tree, and all the birds of the air make homes in the branches. It's a weird story because in actuality, the mustard plant is a nuisance weed. It's a terrible weed. Farmers hate it. It'll take over the field like that. They only grow to like two, two and a half feet tall, and they're terrible. And I could just see the disciples, hey, Jesus, that's a cool story, but I'm not sure how we feel about being called terrible weeds. And I can imagine Jesus kind of looking the guys up and down and saying, look, be grateful. I didn't call you something worse. You know, rejoice that I didn't call you a tumbleweed, which is kind of what a mustard seed is. It's a nuisance. And I think Jesus is saying, look, be happy that what is unimpressive to you is so very impressive to me. With this mustard seed story, Jesus is saying, I see things you don't see. I know things you don't know. I'm at work doing things right now you could never imagine. Matthew chapter 13. It's kind of where we started, but there's There's a bunch of parables here. In verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought the field. Okay, can you see this guy? Get a picture of this guy. He buries this treasure he found, and then he goes to the landowner. Um, Hey, I'd like to buy this field field that's absolutely worthless and there's nothing good that can be found anywhere on it here you go what are we supposed to do with that story and I get it right Um, the kingdom of God is not for the squeamish okay I think that's true the kingdom of God takes uh, drastic measures and you're going to have to do something outside the box to attain the kingdom of God okay I think that's true too but it is strange to me that Jesus characterizes his kingdom as a dishonest land deal What do we do with stuff like this? Matthew 25, this guy takes everything he's got, calls in his servants. He dumps on them all of his money. Without even one word of instruction, he leaves town. What's the message there? Well, that God is busy and God is working and what he's doing is very risky. God 
takes chances with us. It's a reckless gamble, what God has chosen to do. He takes ridiculous chances with us. Mark chapter 4, here's another one. The kingdom of God is like a man who scattered seed, and then he went home and watched Jimmy Kimmel, and he went to sleep. That's what it says. That's the message version I'm reading. But while he slept, the seed germinated, and it grew, and it became a stalk. And whether this guy is awake or asleep, whether he works or he doesn't, these beautiful kernels of grain appear, and then there's this huge harvest, and that just kills all of us super conscientious, spiritually high-achieving religious do-gooders, you know? God's kingdom is something God does. Wait, it's not something I do? No, it's not. In fact, all you do is tend to mostly get in the way. This story says God does his best work when you scatter some seed and back off. Get out of the way so God can be busy doing what he does. Jesus tells these stories to remind us that it's messy. And God is the one who is busy. And when God meets us in our mess... That's when we're changed. Brothers and sisters, that's when everything changes. The Bible says you've never met God until you've met the one who tells these stories. And my favorite stories are in Luke 15. You know the stories in Luke 15. This man who puts everything on hold until he finds that one lost sheep. And brings him home. That woman who sweeps every square inch of her dusty dirt floor until she finds that one lost coin and puts it back in the jar with the others. The father who embraces his lost son and brings him home. And the older brother is ticked. You know this story, right? The older brother who stayed home, the older brother who did not run away, the older brother who faithfully obeyed his dad, he's upset that the younger brother is not getting what he deserves. Dad's taking it too easy on the baby in the family, and, and, and the older brother refuses to join the homecoming party. He stays outside in the yard. This guy is taking a stand. He's making a point, and the father leaves the party. The father leaves his house to go to the son. And in verse 31, he says, my son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead and he's alive again. He was lost but now he's found. And the father is not apologizing here. He's not arguing with his son. He's not even getting on to his son. This is a cry from deep inside the father's heart. This is from deep inside the father. He wants his son to recognize the father's grace and his mercy and his love. This story, this story of Jesus shows us the very heart of our God. 
Listen, our God does not want servants. He wants sons and daughters. He wants children, and he wants them in his family. And so we see in this story, what Jesus shows us so clearly is that God is our loving Father. And he is so quick to forgive, and he is so eager to restore relationship, and he is so delighted to lift runaway sinners and stay-at-home sinners to a place of honor at his eternal feast. That's who God is. And there is, there is no more enduring image in all of Jesus' stories than that of the father running down the road to embrace his runaway son. Jesus tells this story to show us that our God is always waiting. He's always watching and waiting for you. You are owned. You are claimed you are searched for you are dearly loved the father runs down the road and he embraces his lost child and he won't even let the child finish repenting he interrupts the son while he's in the middle of his speech and he lavishes upon him blessing on top of blessing and as powerful as that part of the story is for us today it must have been just overwhelming to Jesus' audience just northeast of Jerusalem almost 2,000 years ago because the law clearly states in Deuteronomy 21 that if a son brings disgrace upon his father or brings disgrace upon his village, he must be taken outside the city gates and stoned to death. That's the law. And these are good law-abiding citizens. This is a law and order community. Yet this father ran to his son to hug him and kiss him. He wrapped his arms around his son and they walked together to the father's house. And if anybody had tried to stone that young man, they would have hit the father who was covering his son with his arms. And that is exactly what God in Christ did for you at the cross. If this child had been dealt with according to the law, there would have been a funeral, not a feast. Praise God. Amen. Praise our Father for his love and his mercy and his matchless grace. And even this story, and it's one of our favorites, it doesn't really have an ending. We don't know if this younger brother grew up and got a job and became a responsible citizen or if four months later he got mad about something else and ran away from home again. We don't know. We don't know if the older brother ever got over himself and decided to join the father's party. Jesus doesn't end the story because these are the kinds of stories you've got to finish yourself. You're in these stories, all of them, whether you know it or not. And you're going to finish all of these stories, whether you realize it or not. Jesus tells these stories to say there is a God who knows you, there is a God who loves you, and there is a God who has great salvation plans for you. You're not alone. None of us is alone. 
And God knows that things are a mess. And he is busy at work in your mess. And he'll surprise you with his forgiveness and grace. And he will dramatically transform your life forever. Come and see Jesus tell stories. Two questions that we have to answer. You've got to answer these two questions. Don't leave here. Don't go to lunch until you've answered these two questions. The first question is, where are you in these stories? Who are you? Which character are you? Are you the fig tree that just needs another chance? Are you the guy in the ditch? Things have been taken away from you. You're broken. You're wounded. You don't know exactly how you're going to be rescued. Which brother are you? Are you the mustard seed? And only God knows your true potential and you have no idea what it is? I mean, I think you've got to answer that question. Who are you? Where are you in the story? And here's the second question. You've got to answer this. How do you want that story to end? How's it going to end? How do you want it to end? You've got to answer those two questions. Stand with me, church. We're going to spend some time in prayer together. I'd like for all of our ministers and all of our elders and your spouses, would y'all, would y'all stand up and just kind of spread out a little bit uh, and make yourself really available, really obvious? If I can get a couple of y'all down front, a couple of you in the back, and then a couple of you maybe in the aisles, just be real obvious that, that you're there. Uh, I'm going to lead us in a prayer and then what I'd like to do, Corey and our worship team is going to sing a song. But during the song, if you want one of us to pray with you, I mean, we would love to just spend a couple of minutes and talk to the Lord with you, about you, where you are in the story, how you want the story to end. Ask God to end it that way and that, that you too could, could write the ending together. So let's do that. Please, uh, please feel free to just... Grab one of our shepherds, uh, one of our spouses. We would just be so honored by God to lift you up to the Lord together in prayer this morning. Let's pray together, church. Father, we are so moved by your son's stories. Some of them make us scratch our heads, and some of them, God, just cut us to the soul because we see ourselves in them. And, uh, Father... You know where, uh, where each of us identified this morning. We told a lot of stories this morning. And you know where the story struck us and where we see ourselves. And Father, we want to acknowledge to you right now. We want to just lift up to you, God, this is where I see myself in the story. I'm the fig tree. I'm the, I'm the church guy who walks by the person in the ditch. I'm... I'm the, the runaway brother. God, you know, you know who we are. And we want to acknowledge that to you right now, Father. Would you please hear us as we tell you where we see ourselves right now? Father, would you also hear our prayer? as we ask you to write the ending to our story. 
in a way that brings you glory, in a way that saves us and brings us into a righteous relationship with you, God. If we need more mulch and some miracle grow, if we need somebody to come by us and pull us out of the ditch, God, if we need a party thrown for us and an invitation to come in, God, would you listen to us as we tell you right now, in the name of Jesus, how we want the story to end. Father, we are living our stories together in you, and you are at work in us. So, Father, would you bless this whole church body right now as we worship you, as we sing to you, as we encourage each other, and as we pray together, Father. Would you be at work in us and through us to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.